Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. Our next guest is an award-winning composer who has contributed towards an impressive variety of notable projects including Bruce Lee action fable Birth of the Dragon, HBO and Aaron Sorkin's smash hit The Newsroom, Cinemax's action thriller Warrior, and Academy Award-nominated documentary film Cartel Land for A&E. His latest projects include Apple TV Plus's The Banker, starring Samuel L. Jackson and Anthony Mackie, Hulu's documentary series Sasquatch, CBS's All Access, Coyote, and HBO's documentary miniseries Tiger. He's an amazing composer, a mentor to many of my friends, and an even more impressive golfer. I'm excited to welcome on the show, <laughs> Scott Salinas. Hey, I'm in full golf attire here, too. Were you just golfing before this? Or after? No, but I always dress like it to make myself feel better on the days when I can't. Mm. <laughs> That's my new thing. Also, I'm 45, so I'm allowed to dress like an old man now. It's fantastic. <laughs> For sure. So you, you dress in golf attire when you're golfing and on days off as well. <laughs> so it's just yeah, exactly. the same outfit every day. <laughs> Keep it nimble. You never know when you might be able to break away. Fair enough, yeah. Do you find that you are actually able to uh, to do quite a bit of golfing and you know have free time in your schedule? Because obviously, it's you're working on so many things constantly. It's in bursts. You know, mm-hmm. I think that golf is incredibly time consuming. Just when you're actually doing it, a round of golf can take you know four or five hours. So having that window is unusual. But you can play nine holes. You can go to the range, and um, I have a putting green in my studio, a little tiny one, so I'll go over there and hit putts. But uh, I would love to be able to play more, but uh, uh, been pre- you're right, we've been pretty busy lately. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's a funny thing when I like go to the park and then like a- an email comes in out of the blue. It's like, hey, we need stems for this cue from four episodes ago. And then you just have to run back home or run back to the computer. And yeah. that that is a That is a problem, especially like... In this pandemic world, there was like right when it started, like March, April, May, June, that stretch, we were quite busy and Zoom ha- had really become just prevalent in our lives. And there was a period there of almost six months where I was sort of perpetually on Zoom call. Like I had to be prepared to Zoom with any number of clients at a moment's notice, and that's an immediate golf killer. Mm. <laughs> like you can't really like Zoom. Like, oh, sorry guys, the camera's off. You know, it's like, can you hold on? Whack. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, that'll keep you. Uh, that'll keep you in the studio. Right. 
Well, so uh, have you been going to the studio like throughout the whole pandemic? Because I know you have the space in Santa Monica, uh, or do you have like a home setup too? Or so, um, my wife and I had our first child. She was born in February, right before the pan- pandemic. Congratulations! So I had to set up. Thank you. I had to set up a home studio for knowing that I would try to be as home as much as possible in the first two or three months, and then the pandemic hit in March, April, May, and there. So I would say the first three months or so, naturally, I was mostly working from home. And I have a mirror rig that I set up in my garage that would sink. And then around midsummer, my little compound in, in San Monica, well, it's pretty big. It's like 2,500 square feet. Yeah. I had some tenants uh, called the Elements who are commercial guys, and they had a pretty big presence in the space. And they just never came back. Hmm. Like... Ever. They're gone now. And like, the, like they just were like, we're not coming back. So the space wound up being for a good like six to eight months, just me and my buddy Berger, 40 feet away from each other in our own rooms. And so we had a little pod. So I started coming back into work because I found working in the garage. I mean, it was plenty nice, but I found it to be just like insufferable. Mm. I, I couldn't get anything done. And uh, so we kind of made a little mini pod. But it was just two of us. <laughs> so, For sure. So I've been back in the studio this whole time. And now we're all vaccinated, which is great. Amazing. Thank yeah. goodness. And close to business as usual. Yeah, it's great to see a foreseeable end. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Crazy. Yeah. And that's interesting about, um, you know, feeling like you were able to get more done at the studio. Because I find that the, having that separation of, you know, home and, you know, family and all that versus... Uh, the working mindset to be a pretty helpful thing, especially because you still could get called into the Zooms when you are trying to be with your family or whatever. Yeah, and I don't, I don't like to go to this, go into the studio, and then like sit around and do nothing and surf the web. Like I, I'm not one of those people who like no matter what's happening, I get to the studio at nine a.m. and leave at eight p.m. or whatever. Like regardless of if I have work, I'm there. If I don't have work. I'm definitely not there. I try to make it really, really efficient and productive when I'm there. And and um, other people are different. Uh, some people are routine people, like some of my tenants. There, I can count on them to be here at eight thirty in the morning every day if I need to send like a repair guy. They're here, and that they like to they like to show up no matter what's going on. If there's nothing going on, then they'll work on their rig or upgrade their software. You know, they always find a way to keep themselves busy. That's the whole reason why I'm in this business, is to not, to be able to take advantage of not having to have sort of a, so much uh, structure in my work environment. For sure. I'd love to just like ask about how that, or I guess like how you got to this point where you are in terms of having this kind of system set up and and having like a studio complex and all that. But I mean, I, I We've known each other for a bit, but I didn't know. So you went to Princeton and then this Berkeley film scoring program where you saw a flyer for the TCM Young Film Composer Competition, right? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know what that was until I just read that recently about you. It's too bad they killed it. It, I don't know how many years it went for. I was early, like one of the first two or three people. Wow. To to win. yeah, it was. I was at the time. I had finished 
my Berkeley studies and I had gone to work for one of my teachers as an assistant. So I was living in Boston and it was probably one of the busiest times in his career ever. Uh, this guy, Sheldon Merowitz, great composer, documentary guy and commercial guy. And uh, we were traveling all over the world recording orchestras and it was just the two of us. So yeah, I washed dishes, but you know, I also arranged and wrote and recorded and, and I didn't even understand at the time, but he had a probably a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars worth of really really nice studio gear mm -hmm. he had every neumann mic and an analog board and i was just like okay this is like what a studio is and so i i was learning engineering and all that stuff and um being an assistant and then i saw this contest and you had to score a scene from a silent film they chose uh nosferatu and um 90 second clip bunch of people sent it in and then the top 10 they wanted to see a score and i know a little bit now because at the time after i i, I won the contest uh i got an agent my first agent not my current agent but he he actually was one of the judges and so he kind of gave me some insight as to what happened i know don davis was one of the judges and the score actually helped push me over too but the main thing was everybody wrote this like horror music sort of aleatoric, scary horror music. And I wrote more like a twisted, misunderstood monster theme. <laughs> and they were like, oh, a melody. I think they were just like, you know, they, they listened to 450, you know, thriller cues. And then they heard one that was a melody. And they're like, I, let's at least put that one in the top 10 and see what happens. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, and then that, that was great because then they gave me a full orchestra, an 80-minute film, 85-minute film, Laugh, Clown, Laugh, which is a famous film from the 20s, Loretta Young and Long Cheney, and like they're like, do whatever you want. You're going to be the official score because this doesn't have a score. Like, you know, they, there was people performing live. It actually had a song, which is interesting, uh, which is very rare, but I didn't incorporate that at all. And um, whatever you do, that'll be the score. No oversight. We'll just we'll see you in uh, three months in LA. Jeez, I mean that's yeah so amazing. And would you say that that was the thing that like kind of brought you to, or like that built up the momentum to get you kind of where you are now? It really was. It got me an agent, and it got me my first gig called Latin Dragon, which I recently realized is actually out there on iTunes. And I I bought it and the whole thing, all the sound, everything is in mono and distorted. It sounds awesome. For some reason, I guess when they digitize it, it's like a bad real player. But anyway, uh, so it got me an action movie and my first real paid gig, not one subsidized by a contest. And then th I was still living on the East Coast. And then that sort of gave me the imp impetus to come out to L.A. Gotcha. And, and make a career. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, that you were kind of assisting on the East Coast. And then when you moved over to L.A., then you already had everything kind of set to just get going as your own composer. I, I joined a, um, a collective called Machine Head when I moved out. And uh, some pretty notable people came out of there. Uh, Junkie XL uh, was probably the biggest person. Uh, Jason Bentley is music supervisor on... Uh, the Matrix, and he's KCRW, DJ Madness, genius, and um, Mark Killian. So I was part of this collective, and they brought me out because they were doing commercials, and they wanted to get more into films. Mm. And so I actually came out 
to LA in 2003 or four and had a job. I was a salaried composer. And uh, from there, I was able to, you know, get indie films and do my own thing. And then we eventually all sort of moved on and started doing our own thing. But that sort of gave me the security and a studio. And I mean, we were on Abbott Kinney, like, I think they were paying like $40,000 a month for the space, like the people that owned it. I mean, it was it was like I, I came in there in some lavish situation and then eventually had to sort of humble myself and work my way back up. Yeah. So that whole time you were <clears throat> like just meeting filmmakers in L.A. too and just, I mean, outside of doing ads, it was – Yeah. 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 I actually like uh, – I recently um, – Worked on a pretty, uh, scored a pretty cool movie called The Banker, which is right. on Apple TV, and it's Sam Jackson. It's a, it's a big movie. It's Apple TV, but it's like, for me, it's a big movie, and it's a big jazz score and orchestra and all this. And that connection dates back to a film festival that I went to in New York City in two thousand one. <laughs> so just to show, like, basically, some of these relationships take 15 to 20 years to pay off. They're like, you know, like cicadas or something, like just buried, you know, <laughs> and then they, they come to life. So I, I, the thing that I sort of figured out early was you had to balance paying the bills if you wanted to be out here. You got to survive. I'm not, I wasn't independently, spoiler alert, I wasn't independently wealthy. I had to, I music had to pay for my, you know, for itself. And, uh, and then also, pursuing what you really want to do. And in my case, I kind of got derailed a little bit when I came out here into commercials. I was still doing some indie films and stuff, but I got really, really big into commercials. I was the Old Spice Whistle. You know, I was at the top and top of commercials. I had Then I had my own commercial music house. And I kind of, around 2010, sort of dropped that all and then went back to film scoring. I had been doing scores all along, but they had kind of been pretty small indie things and and I was making a lot of money from commercials and and I always have this saying like whatever you're doing that's what you do. Mm. If you're waiting tables, you're a waiter. You might be an actor someday. You know what I'm saying, but I I just believe like you have to do the thing that you want to do. You, um, and until you are doing it, you're not that you're not doing it. <laughs> I don't know any other other way to say it. So I kind of was subsidizing my film and television and documentary music career through commercials, and then but then running myself pretty ragged and not pursuing enough of that job because commercials were lucrative and time consuming. So I abandoned ship, and then I I. I had to humble myself. I went and worked for other, I was like 35 and I went and worked for other composers, ghostwriting, arranging, the kind of thing you might do in your 20s and uh, just got back into it. And I, I made a pact. I'm going to switch my income from 20%, you know, the things I want to do and 80% commercials. I'm going to flip that next year was my pact. And I did. And I made half as much money. <laughs> but I flipped the percentage. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So uh, what I what I found is uh, what I found is I uh, you keep having to make course corrections. I mean, there's a lot of work in this town if if you are if you collaborate well with people and you have a decent set of skills. 
You can music edit, you can arrange, you can orchestrate, you can program, maybe you play on someone's stuff. And there's ways to, to scrape by and, and make a decent living. And if you find yourself being fairly proficient at one of those things, next thing you know, maybe that's actually what you do. Maybe you're a session player, not a film composer or whatever. So I found that I had to kind of keep making these course corrections. And even in, even in my career, now where I sort of am doing the things I want to be doing, documentaries, narrative TV, and film, I still find when certain projects come in that may be tempting financially or for some other reason, but they feel tangential to what I'm really trying to do, I have to be really careful and deliberate about that um, so I can stay pointing at the thing that I'm trying to do. Mm. Yeah, but that's really interesting what you said about I mean, just course correction and yeah, just doing what you do. I mean, or uh, what you do is who you are. <laughs> you put it better. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and by the way, it's okay to take an off ramp and wind up in another town and wind up loving that thing. Oh, like for sure. that, yeah. you hear a lot of stories about people who are very successful and they ask you, how did you get into it? And a lot of times it's not that, oh, like in my case, it's like, oh, this is, I kind of decided I want to do this was since I was 19 and I've been pointing in that direction. In other people's case, it's like, oh yeah, I was a carpenter <laughs> on the set and right. now I'm Harrison Ford. Or, <laughs> so, so I feel like there's nothing wrong with those on-ramp, off-ramps and they can lead to amazing places uh, and I still, when I see one that's attractive, I, I do still ask myself, oh, is that something that would be more interesting than what I'm doing now? I'm always open to the idea that I might go somewhere else, maybe produce something or, or you know, be in another part of, of this industry. But um, so far, the answer has been like, no, I, I, I like what I'm doing. I want to stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. And between the two of us, I'm sure we both know, you know, a violinist who was told they have to be a professional violinist at age four. And then by 19, right. when they go to Juilliard, they realize they hate it. And then right. luckily right. are able to figure that out that early because some stick in it for till 30 or 50 and then realize that's not what they want to do. That's right. I had the opposite problem. Like, you know, I did the thing exactly what I was wanted to be doing, but I didn't have a lot of people necessarily thinking that that was the wisest choice. So I, I was sort of bucking the system. And, and you know, I, I was going to say most people who go to Princeton don't become film composers. I, I, I think there's a higher even number than most, you know what I mean? Or a lower number. But yeah, I just kind of knew that's what I wanted to do. And I went for it. Gotcha. Well, I mean, it seems like you're killing it. And I love all the music you've been, you've been doing. Oh, thank so. you. Uh, speaking of, I guess we should talk a bit about Sasquatch, which just came out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wh what more fun prompt could there be than writing Sasquatch music? <laughs> it's wild. So um, Josh, the, the director, he reached out to me because he was a fan of some other documentary stuff I had done. And uh, I went over to his – this is pre-COVID. I went over to his compound and uh, – he played for me some snippets and was telling me about this wild concept that he had. And I was just like, man, I really want to do this. I, I think this could be a great fit. And I, and I just kept saying to him, your idea is really, really music dependent. 
like be he the I don't I'm not going to spoil too much about the show, but it's like a it's about Sasquatch. It's about a you know a crime that happens. It's got a lot of different facets. I think by now it's okay to spoil a little bit for the listeners. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, basically uh, in Northern California, there are these murders that happen, and they've been attributed to Bigfoot, uh, and then. Uh, our narrator happens to be a journalist who happened to have actually been there uh, when they happened and has his own memory of some kind of encounter and hearing the stories of it. And so that leads to his investigating and going up there. And so now we're dealing not only with the story of the past, but his own investigations, which also have an element of danger because it turns out people up there don't want anyone poking around after all these years still. And so what I was telling Josh originally, and I think it's still true, was that tonally the music would have to be very specific in order for the film to work because it's a it's a true crime, it's investigative, it's Sasquatch lore, which has a campiness to it. It's the fear of the unknown, it's the the forest. And so there are all these elements that I felt like we really needed to the score really needed to have an identity. Not just could, but like would have to, or else the the show wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. And um we both agreed on that and and so I knew it was gonna be a really exciting project. And score wise, is there anything you want to tell or tell our listeners about in terms of the creation of that? Yeah, I mean we talked and Josh was like, I know this is gonna sound crazy. What do you think about Oregon? And uh one of the early theme ideas had or like Oregon and it was like Oregon in the distance but around the corner. And then we started just thinking about everything from the perspective of if you were in the woods. And, and also, like, some of the inspirations were, uh, like, what is this like from the Sasquatch's perspective? You know, that that's just personally some of the sounds. What do they hear? You know, so some of the drums are like these footsteps, but the footsteps aren't far away. They're, they're like what they would sound like if you were making the footsteps, if you were Sasquatch. So we use those for drums and... And uh, I mean, that's so funny uh, because that's the same perspective you took that won you the, the TCM. Yeah. I just that I made that connection just now when we we're talking about it. it's kind of like <laughs> how do we get inside of this thing and look at it from different ways? And like, okay, if there is a Sasquatch, I bet he or she is a misunderstood monster. Yeah, they're scared too. <laughs> so, yeah. And then another little fun little composerly tidbit, which I also thought of today, I hadn't really thought about it in a while, was. Uh, for the main theme or whatever, I'm actually using a mode, uh, melodic minor, which, you know, you as a composer know, that's not normally just existing as a mode to live in. It's 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 a scale in a minor key that's usually ascending to get you from one place to another. But I'm living in, in that mode as if it was any other key. And it's really interesting because it has a four major... And it has some of these weird harmonies. And I really stuck to that for the main theme. And there's this chord progression that's all based on melodic minor diatonic. And it just had the magic recipe to me for what the whole show was about. It's set, it's minor because it's intrigue, but there's some campiness to it. And, and I, I was just like, the more I played around in that set of notes, like I felt like, wow, this, this sums up this, the whole vibe of this place. Nice. Yeah, and it gives you just like a nice kind of home for the project. Yeah. The other neat the other neat components uh is um 
uh, Logan Staley, my assistant at the time, who is now graduated to his own pathetic composer status like me, uh, who's still two doors down, but, uh, you know, is now an independent. Uh, he made some really cool sounds on his Moog synth and also played some horrible, horrible violin by design because he can't really play violin, but he could play just the right amount of violin for what we needed. So I had this chord progression and he sampled long notes on his violin that were just barely competent. And then we put him in the sampler and ran him through this chord progression. And so the things that sound like maybe like a, a, a chamber quartet playing chords is not that. It's it's a sampler, but it's Logan's bad violin playing that's awesome in the score because we wanted it to sound, you know, home homemade and homegrown. For sure. And yeah, on that, uh, before we go to the last segment for the podcast, I was wondering if you just talk a bit about your your team and like what what it takes to kind of run the composer, you know, business and everything you have going for you. Yeah, so um, in Santa Monica, I have a, a 2,500 square foot building with five rooms in it. And right now that's all occupied by actually no one that technically works for me, that's employed by me, but people that I, that I work with. So uh, I have a sound designer editor who's huge who's who's done a ton of stuff uh chris smith then there's logan staley and matthew atticsberger and they all do their own music and projects but they love to collaborate and um you know when something comes in that demands a team they're they're down to throw down and so we'll we have a room filled with guitar amps and we'll reamp stuff or we'll record things down the hallway we have a a coffee table that we mostly use as a percussion, you know, and uh, we we come in here and and we and we play a lot. And I think you know, I think it's one of those things like composing and having a team or having you know a sort of I like to call it like special forces unit. I think of it like the A team, you know, like I think it's something that's really important and sort of like maybe quietly talked about in the shadows and it's like we all know that people are working that way and I I kind of like to flaunt it because you never see a director like embarrassed that they have an AD and an editor and a, and a cinematographer and a you know like the millions of people that work for them they're like yeah that's my team so I, I, I approach it the same way and uh, I think the key to success like I've known Berger now probably for 10 years and and Chris for 15 years and Logan for only five or six years. And I think the reason why people are still around is you have to find ways to make the business side of things fair and uh, people feel like they have an opportunity to grow. I'm not interested in like working with folks who want to be lifers like as an assistant or whatever. You know, I have some assistants that I'm, I'm interviewing now that are going to come in potentially, but... I'm always looking for someone who should be like after a couple of years itching to get out of here like I was. Right. You know what I mean when I was an assistant. So I think I think the key is making it fair, making a work environment that feels really fun and counting on people to do what they're going to say. Like I only have one rule if, you know, if you say you're going to do something, you just you have to follow through. And if something happens where you can't, you got to tell me with enough time that I can adapt. That's it. And then we have fun and, and 
And I also really like working with soloists and different instrumentalists. And I'm kind of a social person. And I, I like, that's why the pandemic was really hard. Because, you know, I like coming into a little bit of a hustling, bustling place and barging into people's rooms and asking them like, hey, show me that synth thing you were telling me last night. And it it feels like a think tank instead of like, Maybe what you might think of a of a sort of the romantic version of a composer, I'm off in a cabin somewhere with a piece of paper and and just writing music like that's really attractive like as an image, but as the person who has to live that, that's not fun at all. That's solitary like I mean maybe you do it a, a month out of the year because you want to really like quiet time and rebuild and I've written some scores that way, but generally speaking. I want to barge through the door and see people running around and and doing things and and also constantly have people upping my game, not just musically, but like technology wise. I'm 45 years old. I'm hanging on for dear life. I mean, like I have to use this technology. I wish that I didn't. And so I'm forced to stay in tune with all the new things, which I always dread but then I have guys around me who love that. Like the moment some new piece of software is out, they're literally breaking their computer. Like the next day, their computer won't turn on because they've installed something that isn't safe. And so it's also nice having people around who like push the push the sort of envelope on that stuff. For sure. Yeah, and I think that your the tech side over there is really fun to get inspired by. It's like the whole. Dropbox syncing thing alone that I saw there last time I was over there. Oh, yeah. And we've pushed that to the limit. I just got a message from Dropbox today. I used to have to ask for more space from them. They just do it now. (laughs) They just give me more. They just gave up on me. But it's like, you have 28. We have 28 terabytes on Dropbox. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it works because we're, we, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty stable. Yeah. So we'll actually work. It's a little secret, but we actually work off of the Dropbox local drive that syncs, and we've found a way to do it that doesn't break it. And, you know, we have ways to back up. It's actually pretty phenomenal because every computer that it's on is a backup. Right. So yeah. from, a, from a backup perspective, we have it on a cloud and, you know, however many rigs there are. So we're, we're more than backed up. Yeah, even if the computer and, catches uh, fire, it's on the web. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it gets a little scary from time to time, but they're working out the kinks and it 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 works shockingly well. And you know, we do have like a a way to share files locally. We never use it. <laughs> we still use Dropbox cuz I like it that it's always backed up on the cloud and secure. We're having fun with it. <laughs> uh, well, cool. If it's all right with you, I think we'll go into the last segment for this podcast, a segment called Tech Talk, where I'll list off a tech topic and you can say as much or as little as you want about it. I've already done a bit of that, Great. but uh, first one I have here is DAW. Yeah, we uh, we work in logic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started it at Princeton in Studio Vision Pro, which I don't think anyone remembers, and then uh, Berkeley was all digital performer, and then I went on my own and I was using Cubase on a PC around 2003, four, five and there. Interesting. Loved that. That was and and Giga Studios. So I had like five PCs crammed into a choir rack. That was probably the top of my excitement about my DAW. And then when I went to Machine Head, everyone was on Logic and we switched to Logic. Now I've been on Logic for 15 years and there's no going back. I mean I have the occasional assistant or person who comes through who's trying to get me to 
move to Cubase or something else, but uh, I can't do it. Like we're too entrenched, and it's actually getting really, really good. Uh, um, there's a it's incredible how many toys and fun things there are, and then always Pro Tools, um, and they live side by side. Some people have them on different rigs. Uh, like rec- one recording into the other. We don't do that. We run them on the same rig <laughs> at the same time often. Uh, it doesn't, the OS doesn't care. And Pro Tools job, the way I like to work is I, I'm sort of a dream or maybe nightmare to music editors because I'm always, I always on every job have a Pro Tools session that is my stage delivery session like a music editor would have. And every time we're doing something, it's going into Pro Tools with stems and checkerboarding, and that's where we're making our quick times so that the time we do the last revision on the last queue, we just export that sesh, that Pro Tools session and send it to the stage, and it's done. And they they even know at the stage, like, hey, I don't do any any like writing or any automation on the stems, but I'll only clip gain, but uh, I'll always have a music bus. And I might ride that a little bit for the sake of the QuickTime demos. And they know at the stage, hey, we can we can put that on a VCU. And if we take our hands off, the music will come in exactly as the edit ha- has been hearing it this whole time and what they're used to. So that that's a kind of a dirty little secret. A lot of times those guys will even take my automation as a starting point uh, so that it's not like, why the music used to fade out and now it doesn't anymore. You know, like there's no like having to redo things. And then this is my way <clears throat> of sort of making sure that I, uh, I'm i not, oops, wow, look, I'm using the same theme three times in a row. You know, getting the big picture. And also when I have a director over, which is less, you know, during these times, but I like to do a lot, I work at Pro Tools. So we could see the whole, sc- and I'll I'll solve problems in Pro Tools, and if they can't be solved via music editing, I'll at least be able to diagnose them. Oh, I see. You don't like this element. Let me kill that. Yeah, that's better. But now we need to add something. Okay. When you go on lunch, I'll open up Logic and wait for twenty minutes for that session to open, and then add something. We're not going to do that right now, most of the time, because it's just too time consuming to get into Logic. But it's a great tool for me to quickly diagnose and often solve problems also with the director. And they know whatever they're hearing in that moment is exactly what's going to be at the stage because that's the session that I'm working in. Cool. Well, the next one I got here is uh, about your new sweet pedal and ribbon controller setup. Oh, yeah, let's see. Oh, it's not plugged in right now, which is too bad, but I'll show it to you. Whoa, what is that? <laughs> So I actually bought this off of Logan. He bought it as a VCA controller to control his new uh, Moog, and he couldn't get it to work or gave up on it. But it actually, I don't use it as a MIDI controller. It actually has a really hilarious sine wave synth in it. And then it's just as as you would think. It's just like a, it sounds exactly like a a theremin. Not exactly, but, you know, that's what it's trying to approach. Mm -hmm. But then I run it through a bunch of, let's see, I don't know if I can tilt this might be really, let's see. Whoa. I run it through all these. I don't know if you can see that. Can you see that? Oh, yeah. I run it through all these guitar pedals, and I'm sorry I don't have it on right now, but that starts to get really, really interesting. Um, and uh, 
I really like it because it can only be played with one finger at a time, which is sort of like how my brain works anyway as a guitar player. So, um, and it's spooky and cool and sci-fi. Like I keep fantasizing I'll get a like a black and white sci-fi movie and only use that sound for the whole movie. I mean, only, if only the TCM contest to sell things, you could get another silent film. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do a silent film. That'd be great. Yeah. Uh, well, you killed it here with Tech Talk. Uh, do you want to tell the people what you've got going on? Yeah, coming up, uh, some fun stuff. Uh, oh, I got nominated for a BAFTA Television Award today, I found out, uh, for uh, Baghdad Central, a uh, Hulu TV show that was done out of, out of uh, England, uh, Channel 4. And uh, I'm really proud of that. Congrats. And I'm up against the crown, so that's the last year you'll hear about this. But uh, <laughs> but it's just great to be nominated. Yeah. And uh, I I got um, a uh, a really neat documentary for Netflix coming out uh, about Bob Ross. I don't know if you remember him. He's the painter with the big curly hair, and and that's pretty neat because it turns out, of course, that there's a lot more to that story than just the happy painter, and there's some trials and tribulations and shenanigans and. Uh, you know, the people that he was partnering with were not always the most honest. And it, it gets into some pretty interesting things. And he has a son who's also a painter. So it actually is a pretty neat, uh, in-depth uh, thing. And then finally, the thing I'm probably the most excited about is uh, our TV show Warrior that I do with uh, Reza Safinia, mm-hmm. which is on HBO Max. It sort of had died. It did. We did two seasons and it had sort of just died... For no good reason. People love the show, but it used to be on Cinemax, blah, blah, politics, business. And then they released it on HBO Max and it became kind of a hit. And then there was this big petition and it's back. Yes. So the season three. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. If you're not familiar with the show, it's a mostly Asian cast because it, it takes place in Chinatown in the 1800s. And it's also Bruce Lee came up with this idea originally. He was rejected from all the studios. And then mysteriously, shortly thereafter, a TV show called Kung Fu with David Carradine came out that was a very similar idea. And so his uh, daughter, Shannon Lee, finally got this thing made. And it's very cool. It's it's historical, but it's also anachronistic because you'll have guys wearing Armani suits, you know, like but it's supposed to be the 1800s and like the music is very pulpy and fun and like pulp fictiony and wild and and my buddy Reza came from records originally he was a big music producer and so it's always fun working with him cuz like I've learned that there's no there's nothing that you can't put distortion on that's the thing that he's taught me uh, so that that's definitely one where we get out all the distortions at distortions at eleven at all times, and it's it's really fun. And we got now we got an album coming out for that uh, season two. They really they're releasing an album, so that's really good news. Amazing. Well, it sounds like you're yeah. killing it, and uh, yeah, it was just such a pleasure having you on the show. Great to see you. That was really fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong. Matthew Wong.